Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have a message from June 11th. This is Penny Murray, a member of our teaching team and regular featured speaker here at North Shore Vineyard. She's doing a message entitled Worship, Doubt, and Going Out. I need to come up with rhyming titles for my messages more. That's just cool. That's the way Penny rolls. So we're going to go ahead and head to the talk. Uh, really good message here. You're going to enjoy it and find it very helpful in your journey, I suspect. So thanks for listening. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. says we should uh, compliment Crispin while he's gone and not while he's here. Um, I was going to say the, the art of storytelling class, that was excellent last summer. I think that's one of um, just the most well done things I've seen Crispin do and kind of open up and teach and get people involved. It was really great. So I, I would encourage everyone to come try that out. It was really great. So, uh, earlier this week, I was on the phone with my mom. She likes when I include her in my messages. I love my mom. And we were talking about movies that we hadn't seen in a long time, that we were like, oh, we should watch that again. And I got to thinking about Forrest Gump. And just the storytelling, the acting, the characters, Tom Hanks, the way Forrest kept stumbling into historic figures and events, and yet somehow you could believe it. Like, it, it was so cool. But one of the most, I think, unique things about the movie was how it opens up. Because it doesn't open at the beginning, it starts at the end of the movie. We find Forrest is sitting on a bench and he's waiting for a bus. And if you'll remember, people come along and they sit down with Forrest and he starts to remember. He starts to look back and he begins to tell them his story. And that's how I felt when I opened up the gospel passage for this Sunday because we're thrown into the very end of the book of Matthew. We're at the very end of the story. The disciples have been told to climb a mountain and wait for Jesus. And I got to thinking about, well, what would it be like if we climbed with them? What stories would they tell us? I started thinking, well, I bet, I bet they would remember who they were when Jesus found them, how they were just going about their normal life, 
showing up for their job each day, a repeat of the one before. And then Jesus shows up, and everything changes. I bet they would talk about uh, how he had no problem challenging things, the way he could challenge the religious system of his day, the structures of power in his day, just the way he, he spoke to people, the way he embraced them and included them and loved them. And I imagine they were still making sense of this story, the way he was violently killed and then a resurrection. I bet, I bet they were asking themselves, where do we fit in this story now? So they reach the top of the mountain, and there Jesus speaks to them. And he gives them this kind of farewell address. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this passage is known as the Great Commission. And if you grew up in church, especially, you know, a little more of an evangelical-flavored tradition, you've, you've heard this before, and especially in the context of foreign missions. Now, the church I grew up in, we loved foreign missions. And we had this big jar that we kept in my parents' closet. And every day, my younger siblings, they would go collect all the leftover change, and they would run to my parents' room, and they would drop the money in the jar. And the idea was that we would save money to give to foreign missions, and we would pray for the missionaries when we put this money in the jar. But my brother and sister, for some reason, thought we were supposed to praise them. So they would scream, praise the missionaries, (laughs) as they would put that money in. Now, my sister... My sister, her whole life, wanted to be a missionary. It's all she talked about. And she started really young, like at four. One of her her very first evangelical crusades was directed at this elderly aunt. And we were there in her home visiting. And Tony felt like she had some questionable habits. And she decided to use them as an opening. To, to share her four-year-old testimony. And I'm going to see if I can do this right with a straight face. Um, she looked at our aunt, and she said, I'm a Christian, and Christians don't drink, and Christians don't smoke. And this just, she just kept repeating this all weekend. It was, it was awful. Now, my sister, she, she did go on to experience some amazing mission work in Africa, in Asia, in Russia, and now she's a youth minister, which is a lot like hanging out with primitive savages, (laughs) trying to communicate. And I know, I know that there are incredible followers of Jesus going out into the world, doing amazing work, seeking to share God's love with both words and actions. So, Is that what this passage is about? Is it reserved for the chosen few who have this calling 
to leave home and, and share the gospel? Or does it speak to us? Those of us who wake up and live our normal, mundane lives, what does it mean for us to be a disciple? And what does it mean for us to make disciples? I was recently reading about the life of Mohandas Gandhi and his connection to Jesus and Jesus' teachings. In his autobiography, Gandhi says that his parents had actually raised him to have a high respect for other religions, but Christianity was the exception. Because you see, in his town, there were English missionaries who would stand on the side of the road at his local high school, and instead of building relationships with the Indian people, of understanding their culture, their beauty, their wisdom, connecting with them, Instead, they would stand there and they would just heap abuse as people would walk by. Gandhi said that there was a well-known man in his community who converted to Christianity. But when he was baptized, he was told he now needed to eat meat, drink liquor, and dress like an English man. And then this man begin to criticize his own people and culture and customs. And this left a very harsh distaste towards Christianity for Gandhi. Now, Gandhi's biographer once said that he entered in to Gandhi's hut, and there was only one decoration on the mud walls. And that was a black and white picture of Jesus with the inscription, he is our peace. So something along the way shifted between his childhood aversion of Christianity and his adult adoration of Jesus. What happened was while in England, Gandhi met a Christian vegetarian who encouraged him to just read about Jesus from the Bible. So Gandhi agreed, and he started at the very beginning. And while the Old Testament disturbed him in several places. The New Testament, his encounter with Jesus and his teachings went straight to his heart. Gandhi said this about Jesus. He said, Jesus was a man who was completely innocent, offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act Jesus expressed as no other could the spirit and the will of God, and it is in this sense that I see him and recognize him as the son of God. And about the teachings and commands of Jesus, he said the message of Jesus, as I understand it, is contained in the Sermon on the Mount, unadulterated and taken as a whole. If then I had to face only the Sermon on the Mount and my interpretation of it, I should not hesitate to say, oh, yes, I am a Christian. But negatively, I can tell you that in my humble opinion, what passes as Christianity is a negation of the Sermon on the Mount. What I found from my reading about Gandhi is that he connected deeply with the teachings of Jesus. And he didn't just believe them. He actually entered into them. He lived them out 
creatively within his own context. And through these teachings, he was able to bring transformation and redemption for the people around him. When you read about how Gandhi lived his life, how he moved in the world, how he connected with others, I have no problem saying Gandhi was a disciple of Jesus. And he was out there making more disciples, guys like Martin Luther King Jr. But Gandhi was never a convert to the religion of Christianity. I'm going to bet that when Gandhi was reading through the New Testament, he pictured the missionaries from his youth when he got to Matthew chapter 23. In this chapter, Jesus encounters the Pharisees and their brand of missionary work. And he said to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You cross land and seas to make a single convert and make the new convert twice the child of hell as yourselves. Earlier in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus gives what I really think of as his first great commission. And that, too, was directed at the Pharisees. He told them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. These Pharisees, they were going out. They were trying to convert others to their belief system, to their rules, to their regulations, to their rituals. But Jesus comes down on them pretty hard. So what's the difference? What is the difference between making converts and disciples? The very first disciples of Jesus were called followers of the way. It was a way of life. It was a way of being and moving in the world. And when we live into the way of mercy, of sacrificial love, when we live into the way of peace and compassion and solidarity, the way of grace, the way of generosity and humility, when we start walking the extra mile and turning cheeks and choosing to die to ourselves so we can live for others, that's living in to the way. And that's what marks a disciple of Christ and keeps us from making children of hell. Now, I've done, I've done all the right steps for conversion, at least according to the traditions that I've been exposed to. I've, I've prayed. I've asked God to forgive me of my sins. I've asked Jesus to come into my heart. I've been baptized. I've read the Bible. I've had the daily quiet times. I've been deeply connected to church my entire life. I've attended the youth camps, the revivals, the holiday services. I've experienced the spiritual highs. And I'm grateful. I'm, I'm grateful for so much of my religious background and how it has helped to spiritually form me. But that's not what Jesus was asking for on top of that mountain. A student of Gandhi who was a Christian once said that the Christian church, despite its adoration of Jesus and its exaltation of him to the throne of divinity, has all along relegated his teachings as impractical idealism. Jesus' great enunciation of the law of love as the only rule of life for man as a child of God, though repeated ad nauseum by professing Christians, has continuously been given the go-by in Christian practice. Jesus was asking for us to take his teachings seriously, 
to take the risk of living them out within our communities and then inviting others into this way of living. And that's something that we're all still trying to figure out. There's a world of difference between being a convert to a religion and a disciple of Jesus. And I can check the convert box easily, but discipleship, that is a lifelong journey that I'm still growing into. So what does it look like to be a disciple and make disciples? I think it actually looks a lot like dancing. Now, I grew up dancing with my mom and my dad. Um, in our kitchen, we, we would Texas two-step, we would waltz, we would jitterbug. And this, this is just part of my family history. And when Brian came along, he figured out that I really liked to dance. But Brian was not exactly a dancer. So swing dancing was making a comeback in the early 2000s. And so he went online and he found a DVD that promised to have you swinging and jumping and jiving. And so he bought this DVD and he set it up in his bedroom and would lock the door. And he began trying to secretly learn how to swing dance. It was sweet. Well, one day I, I came over and I went into his bedroom and I found the DVD case. And I know he was horrified. Um, I was swooning because I knew he must really love me, this mild-mannered, reserved computer science major. If he's trying to learn to dance for me, but you can't. You can't learn to dance alone in your bedroom. <laughs> so we started setting up a TV and a DVD player under the carport of my parents' house. And on Friday nights, we'd pop in that DVD, and we started learning to dance together. And we spent hours under there holding hands, counting to eight, learning the steps, feeling the rhythm learning to swing and turn and leap, uh, learning to listen to each other, learning how to practice leading and following and improvising in the moment of the song. And we fumbled it up. We laughed our heads off. I know we got irritated with each other, but we just kept returning back to the steps. Sometimes I think, we start to think of discipleship as knowing things, that we need to nail the facts, and then we need to regurgitate the info. And it's all about getting our beliefs nice and tidy and straight and organized, as if what Jesus really wants is for us to ace a standardized test before we die. Now, my beliefs about God, they're incredibly important to me. I spend way too much time and energy trying to think this stuff through. But discipleship, it's got to be more than our beliefs. Discipleship has to be about how we move. And we have to get out on the dance floor. We've got to feel that beat and listen to the music and find the rhythm. And we have to join in on the steps. We have to get sweaty. And we have to be willing to make some mistakes and then we've got to feel that music and count to eight and start again. 
And we begin to find this connection, this energy that's humming between us as we dance our way through the song. And it's clumsy, and it's weird, and it's vulnerable. And you may feel like you're terrible at it, but that's okay because you're dancing. You just have to get out there and dance. That's how we learn. The only way to become a disciple and make disciples is when we jump in and we actually start following the steps of Jesus. And it's as we follow, that's when we come to know God. That's when we figure out who God is and what God is like. It only happens within the context of living our life in Christ. Now, I've been, I've been around the Bible my entire life. I've grown up hearing and reading these stories. And so often, um, especially as I get older, I'm finding my familiarity can blind me. You come across a passage like this and you say, oh, yeah, great commission passage. Yeah, go out, make disciples, baptize, blah, 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 yeah. But having to sit with the scripture something really knocked me over. In verse 17, after the disciples have climbed the mountain, but before Jesus gives the Great Commission, something happens there. It says that the disciples worshipped him, but some doubted. And I just, I had never noticed that. These... These disciples had been there from the beginning. They had seen and experienced it all. They had been on these epic road trips all over Israel, watching Jesus, working alongside of him, listening to him teach, seeing the way he treated people. These were the men who watched him die, and now they're, they're on top of a mountain with the resurrected Christ. And they worshiped but some doubt it. As a general rule, I walk around with some big questions about God, about faith, about scripture. I'm, I'm just constantly kicking the tires on what it means to be a Christian and to be a person of faith. And not, not just questions, but I would say some real doubts, some real hesitations especially as I react to some of the atrocious things I see carried out in the name of God. And sometimes I'll think, you know, if I could just have been there, if I could have experienced Jesus the same way these disciples did, you know, tangibly, in the flesh, being a part of it, well, surely then I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't wander down these rabbit trails of faith. But I'm sitting there looking at verse 17 going, well, that's probably not true. Because they still had questions. These guys still had hesitations and confusions. They, they were still trying to figure it out. Even after everything that they had experienced, even on this epic mountaintop moment. Now, I am also a person of worship. I am a person who believes deeply in the incarnation, in forgiveness and grace. 
I believe that Jesus is the truest revelation of who God is and what God is like. And I am a person who desires to see the world around me transformed and redeemed and healed and thriving. So when I read this story, I find myself in both. I can find myself with the disciples that worshiped just as much as I can find myself with the disciples who were doubting. And here is my favorite part. Here's where things really get interesting. Because we find Jesus doesn't communicate just by what he says in this passage, but also by what he doesn't say. And Jesus doesn't really seem to care. He doesn't start dividing them into two groups. Okay, here are the ones that worshipped, and here are the ones that doubted. He doesn't start tossing people off the mountain. He just speaks to them all. He embraces them all, and he invites them in to what is going to happen next. He's not angry. His feelings and his ego are not hurt. He's not discouraged by their doubts. Even more impressive, he's not distracted by their worship. The message translation says it like this. It says, Jesus, undeterred, went right along and gave them this charge. Jesus was undeterred. One of my favorite authors is the Franciscan priest Richard Rohr, and he has this provocative statement that I've heard him say before. He says, Jesus does not ask us to worship him. He asks us to follow him. By trusting and allowing this entire scary and infinitely rewarding journey. This great commission is a journey that Jesus is inviting us to join in. And it's only when we follow Jesus that we come to know him. And it's only in the living out of Jesus' teaching, that's where we're going to gain our conviction and our belief. And when we really come to know God through living our life in this way, when we, when we follow the teachings, when we experience Christ in this way, that's when we worship Because true worship, worship of the God that we find revealed in Jesus, that takes place when we join together and when we start to live our lives following the dance steps of Christ, carried by the music of the Spirit. Because there is no greater act of worship than when we embody love. When I think of us as a community, when I, when I think of North Shore Vineyard, we, we are not a group of people who ever got together and said, oh, we believe all the same things. We are such a diverse community from different backgrounds, from different experiences. But what I do think we agree on, what binds us together, is that we are committed to living together, to dancing this out, to live our way, our our lives in a way that makes Jesus present to each other and to the world around us. So today, does your heart bow down in worship? Or today, do you enter this building with some questions and doubts and hesitations humming in the background? Or maybe you're like me and your heart and soul just stretched across the entire spectrum all at once. 
Well, we're in luck because this story, in this story, doubt appears alongside worship. And this story creates space for all of us, doubters and worshipers and worshiping doubters. There's room for all of us to get caught up in this resurrection story and to begin dancing with the Spirit, following the steps of Christ across every dance floor that we find ourselves. So I'd like to close by rethinking the words of the Great Commission and how we might would speak them today. So I'm going to just read this over us as a prayer. You can close your eyes. As you go about your daily life and all of your spheres of influence in your family, in your community, and in your travels near and far, I want you to live in a way that shows others what it is like to be in the presence of God. Internalize the ways of Jesus, the ways Jesus showed us how to live, and let your lives embody his teachings and his ways. I want you to draw others into this way of life, especially those who are hovering on the margins, those who have been excluded shut out and pushed aside. Each day, wake up and practice dying to your old ways of thinking and living and be born into the way of giving yourself over in service and love to others, empowered by the Spirit of God. And remember, no matter what happens in life, no matter what challenges struggles, joys, and disasters come your way. You are never alone. Amen. Thanks, guys. So if anyone would like prayer or anything like that, we have, we have people for that. So just feel free to come up.